Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, friends of all shapes and sizes. This is Shark Brain, the podcast about creativity in the 21st century. I'm your host, Jake Newton. Thank you so much for tuning in, for clicking on the button, for putting me in your head. I know that you have a lot of things competing for your attention. And to pick me is, well, let's just face it, the gold medal. Maybe silver or bronze. Maybe you're typing something else. I don't know. I'm on the podium, though. They might not be playing my national anthem, but I am I am standing there with my hand on my heart, looking very reverent. Anyway, I digress. This week on the show, we've got David Hodges. I got the opportunity to go over to his place of business, his studio, and we uh, we wrapped for a bit. We actually went for so long, ended up going for about two and a half, three hours, that we had to cut it short. I, I'm... I'm going to do something that I have not done before. It's a bit of a milestone for Shark Brain. I'm cutting this interview into two parts. Now, for those of you who don't know who David Hodges is, very interesting character, really great, hilarious, fun, sharp-witted, intelligent guy. But he was a member of uh, Evanescence, one of the founding members. Actually uh, started off as a Christian kid in the middle of the South Worshipping Michael W. Smith, but not in the capital worship, you know what I mean? Just had uh, had aspirations to be in Christian music. I completely know where he's coming from because I grew up in the same way. And he started this band. We talk a lot about, in the first half of this interview, about leading up to Evanescence the band. And for those of you who don't know who Evanescence is... I'm, you're either too young or too old. I'm not making a judgment call. I'm just saying that's probably what the case is. But suffice it to say, 2002, 2003, cultural icons at the moment, goth pop, huge, huge band. Since then, he's become a professional songwriter, writing such hits as A Thousand Years with Christina Perry, uh, The Woman I Love with Jason Mraz. A lot of people this guy's worked with, a lot of big songs he's written, And he's achieved a great amount of success doing that. Staying at home, writing songs, going to all of his kids' functions, not being on the road, not accidentally forgetting his toothbrush in Topeka, Kansas and having to get the travel toothbrush because even rock stars have to do that. Not all of them can hire an assistant to go out and get another Sonicare. They have to use the crappy hotel toothbrush. That's just the nature of the road. He is here in town making the hits that are then forced to go out on the road. So I wanted to sit down with this guy and figure out how he got to where he got and how he does what he does. And we did. We we were in for about two and a half hours. So this first half is is going to be just sort of the origin story of David Hodges. And then in the latter half that I'm going to be releasing next week as the second parter, uh, we're going to wax lyrical a lot about, you know, the nature of the business and the nature of creativity and, and all that. Luckily, the conversations sort of naturally split that way. So we do have a bit of an origin story in the beginning, and then we'll do that second. But, um, yeah, look forward to that next week. Hey, we're in it for the long haul on this one, guys. It's exciting. It's the first time I've done this. First time I've had a conversation this long. And it kept going and going afterwards. We even turned the mics off and talked for another hour or two after that. It was a good, good, good time. But what's going on with me? specifically, right? That's why you're still listening to the intro. You want to hear about me. Well, pre-production on the album has begun. It, it We're plotting forward. I'm moving through second guesses and third guesses and tempo changes and key changes and that 
thing back and forth and and feeling uh, I, I don't know sometimes when i'm in the middle of the studio and maybe uh you can relate to this if you record yourself or attempt to record yourself when no one else is there and you don't have another voice to speak to you and say move on you're getting crazy but there's those moments where you have the the self-doubt of, of about virtually everything in in your song and your abilities as an artist and and it's not that they come in a very uh outright binary you're good or you're bad it's these little tiny fissures that pull up within yourself to kind of say oh, you know what maybe this song, maybe this song would be better with the other guitar maybe this mic pattern that you're using is no good maybe maybe the bridge needs to be worked on before you set something down oh you know what would be better i know let's reconfigure our entire pro tools rig because i mean if we're going to start an album we might want to reconfigure it you know just to make sure it's streamlined and you know we all know what that happens then you just end up at the end of the day looking at catalogs for gear and not really doing anything now for those of you who don't have any idea what i'm talking about as it pertains to this you can put that onto your own life i'm sure that authors and writers uh end up reading a lot more magazines than they end up writing for with the intention of starting out to sit down and write i'm sure that fashion designers look quote-unquote on tumblr for inspiration when they're trying to design something and end up somewhere down an internet hole i think we all end up down an internet hole at some point or another I still have yet, I'm going to be honest with you guys, I still have yet to rend myself away from this ever-present technological tide that keeps on hitting me. Now, I know that I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I was going to be giving myself a little bit of a cleanse on that. I, to be perfectly plain and honest with you people, have not done that. I'm thoroughly and completely just absorbed by it. And I feel like it's making me absolutely dumber and dumber and dumber. And I just don't know what to do, guys. I don't know. I I have attempted um, many times to get my ire up to to pull myself away from things. The screwed up thing about it is that uh, I'll give my I'll time myself. Or what I mean to say is that I will put a timer on to just not do anything, just to sit and be. But the timer will be on my phone, so it's almost as if I'm. What would be the rough equivalent? I guess I'm... Oh, I got it. I'm I'm going to an AA meeting in the middle of a bar. That's what it is. Boom. Shakalaka. Brain power. Oh, geez. I still got it. Even though it's addled by apps and downloads and BuzzFeed. I still got it. Don't worry. Maybe this week I'll do the cleanse. Tell you what. If anybody else wants to jump in on the digital cleanse with me, email me. Hey, don't 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 Facebook or Twitter me because that's counterintuitive. Let's do it. Let's all pledge to be off of the internet for a day. You know, maybe that'll work. Maybe after you've listened to this podcast, you're right. Right? Come on. I I, I don't want to bite the hand that feeds. But in all honesty, how much is it really feeding me other than you know overfeeding me? All right, allegory, schmallegories. Let's let's move on from there. I just recently went through my entire iPhone of voice notes and culled through everything, listened to everything, and found, I think, 30 song starts from the last year, roughly thereabouts, you know, maybe the last year and a half, that I just never finished, that I I never, never pursued. It's one of the insidious parts of, of being able to capture everything. It's the follow-through, and I don't know whether or not it was... Uh, 
it was a different writer, or I've heard this attributed to George Harrison, that he said if you start a song, you have to finish the song in one sitting. It's it's kind of like French fries in that way. Not that that's a... the George Harrison part, the first part of the George Harrison part. I'm just talking about the fact that you have to chase it when it's fresh. And so I haven't attempted to finish a few of these songs. I haven't attempted to deconstruct what uh, the initial inspiration was from them. Maybe I could find a, a gem that I let go. So it's a, it's revelatory. It's a, it's a rebirth of sorts, but not a completely clean slate. It's almost as if a rediscovery of what what I've been going through over the last year and a half, the difficulties with um, creatively finding my place in the world and, and airing out the sense of bitterness and bringing in in its place a sense of legitimacy and, you know, hell, um, giving myself a bit of mental stability, a, a, a buttress against the ever-flowing tide of negativity that seems to be pervasive in this world. Hey! Let's not get too metaphysical. That's what the other part's for. This is for me being nebbish and complaining about my life in a fun way. But things are going great. I feel I feel so much better than I have in years. Just by the sheer level of activity that I've pushed myself into. I, I think it was the last couple of weeks I was talking about keeping my brain busy so it wouldn't eat itself, wouldn't cannibalize itself, wouldn't turn its dark thoughts towards itself harness them you know like a wild animal push them towards the horizon and let them drag you to wherever they need to drag you but don't let them sit in the cage and fester and gnaw their own legs off wow i might be a little too metaphysical allegorical right now who knows i'm gonna let it slide you guys are faithful listeners you guys are my people you understand me or at least you like me right you like me Stop looking for approval, Jake. You're never going to find it in everybody. Be yourself. Look at me. I'm like pumping myself up like in the end of Hoosiers. Bam. I don't even, I haven't even, to be honest, I haven't even seen that movie. I know it's a sports movie and I'm sure that there's a big pump up at the end. So I just used it as an example. Uh, There, I admitted it. I'm a liar. Deal with it. Now, to talk about, again, the interview with David Hodges. Sat down with this guy in his studio that he's got in the basement of his house. Great studio, beautiful home, lovely wife, lovely kids. I mean, sweetheart of a guy. This, you know, it's a full quiver on this guy. And the great thing about it is that he seems really happy. And I like being happy. I it's new to me. <laughs> I I I haven't really got a lot of road miles with being happy. Might shock a few people to know that I kind of delve in the dark for the majority of my time. Just because I'm funny doesn't mean I'm happy. But I want to get happy. I want to be a success. In my own paradigm, a success. I want to loosen up. And who better to go and talk to about that than somebody who seems happy, someone who seems fulfilled, someone who seems confident in their abilities to what they do. And that's just what this conversation was about. So, without waxing lyrical about what the conversation was, I'm going to get to the conversation. We jump off in the middle here. I lost a little bit of the audio at the very beginning because of poor quality. My bad. And we uh, we kind of fade out toward the end. But understand that uh, the second half of the interview is going to be in one week on a Monday. Uh, part two. Part deux, so to speak. So, 
Without further ado, here we have the interview with David Hodges on the one, the only, Shark Brain. I mean, like to the to mine the depths of your soul, to cull from the very center of your being that which you feel to be the truths of the universe, and then to show it to somebody who's an anr and goes like, "I don't hear a single," you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah, you're right. Or or to hear or uh, a teenager on a blog post that says like, "I don't, uh, this sucks." <laughs> Both hit you in like different but equally bad ways. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because in one in one sense, like the the A and R person goes, you you have no way to contextualize anything of what I'm talking about. That's, you kept right. on that last conversation that we had. Half of it was you talking about St. Bart's, you know. In wow, we don't connect. That's and, not my audience. And then the other half, you're like, who's the audience? You go like, but you don't understand. You got to get older and like you know figure <laughs> shit out. And when you do, you this song will mean a lot to you. <laughs> Rock in a hard place, man. Oh man. So dude, let's go back. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. I was mm. born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Anyone from Tulsa knows this. Oh, man, I think it's St. Francis, but it's the pink hospital. Huh. The whole build it's this big pink building in the middle of the city. Oh, and that wow. I do remember, and I think it's called St. Francis. But I feel like everyone that I've ever met from Tulsa, born between 1965 and 1985, was born at the pink hospital. Really? And I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. At the pink hospital of, of St. Francis. Of St. Fran- Francis, question mark. St. Yes. Francis? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Francis. When did you move over to uh, Little Rock? I moved to Little Rock when I was five. Uh-huh. Of Tulsa, I remember three things. I remember we had a pool, and my brother is a great swimmer, and I was a less than mediocre swimmer, and I almost drowned multiple times as a child. <laughs> I, um, I understand that. You know what swimming is to me? This hmm. is a borrowed joke, but uh, swimming to me is just staying alive when I'm in the water. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much what it is. That's it's, perfect. It's not leisure. It's not a sport. No, 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 it's, no, no. It's literally like, when do I get back on land? What do I have to do to get there? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. When I was... Uh, I don't know, 32 years old, a couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I and a couple of our kids went to the lake that I grew up on um, going to with my family. And as a common thing when I was a kid, when I was 10 or 12 years old, my brother, a couple of years older, is, again, an amazing swimmer. Mm-hmm. And we'd be <laughs> we'd stop the boat in the middle of the lake, and we'd be swimming around the boat, and my brother, like, jaws, comes out of nowhere and pulls my leg underneath, <laughs> and I'm freaking out, and I'm just trying to get back to the surface, trying to get back on the boat again. This is normal for a 12-year-old. For a 32-year-old, it's not normal. Still true, though. Absolutely. We take our kids, and my, my daughter's like, Dad, what's wrong? It's like, I'm terrified to be in this water. That's what I am. Um, so we had a pool. There was a place called a place called Crystals mm-hmm. that was like a Chuck E. Cheese, showbiz kind of pizza, huh. kids running around playing video games place. Yeah, Crystal. Yeah, they, they, they were the predecessors of the animatronic thing, right? You okay, this makes sense to me now because it all felt very similar, but I didn't know. Yeah, that's probably right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the creepy like mouse or whatever yeah. on stage. Oh, yeah, the, 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 their servos are louder than the songs itself. Totally. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. You could, yeah, you could hear the robot much more than you could hear the music. So I remember we had a pool. I remember we would go to Crystal's every once in a while, and I remember maybe the greatest gift my parents passed on to me, the first movie I ever saw in theaters 
was Star Wars, oh and I saw gosh. it with my dad, and I was like four years old. Oh, yeah, dude. Right. Which is a little bit weird, because I was born in 1978, and the movie came out in 77. So I th- I assume what it was was like the theater was doing some lead-up to Return of the Jedi. Yeah. And it was right before I moved, and we went to see Star Wars. I didn't see Empire Strikes Back or, or Return of the Jedi in theaters, but... It's kind of like if Thriller is your first music video, yeah. then all music videos are kind of downhill from there. It really is, man. That's kind of what mm. that, like, it made me, I was just mesmerized. I remember, it's one of my first memories being in the theater watching Star Wars and Tulsa. So those three things I tip my hat to Tulsa for. Okay, okay. Yeah. I and mean, it's interesting, especially with that particular film. I had an impact on me. I grew up in, like, at least around that age, I was in a rural ranch in uh, southern Oregon. and But we had well, Star Wars taped off of the... Uh, off of TV Fantastic. around Christmas time, and so I, I, every time I see a Christmas commercial, I think that Star Wars is about to come up. It's it's a weird like Pavlovian response. <laughs> Mouth starts to water. I start to you know think about Yule logs and various other things. That's fantastic. So you went went from there to Little Rock. Um, mm-hmm. What did mm-hmm. your parents do? My dad is a general practice doctor. Mm-hmm. My mother uh, was a homemaker. My father played piano. My both of my parents played piano. My mother um, can can't even touch a key without the notes telling her to. Mm-hmm. And my father can't read music for the life of him. So they were like opposites in that regard. Yeah. And at, at certain seasons of my life, I remember very specifically thinking like, my mom's a really good piano player. My dad is terrible. Mm-hmm. And then other seasons of my life being like, my dad has a real natural instinct towards piano, mm-hmm. and my mom. Comes in a time yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So they both played piano. My dad was an all-state trumpet player in high school. Wow. My mother was an all-country. What is it called? Um, national. I, I guess so. <laughs> uh, a nat- national flautist. She went to tour the world. Went to Japan and wow. other countries playing flute with a with a band. So they were both definitely gifted musicians. Uh, growing up in the Southern Baptist Church, they both sing in the choir, and my mm-hmm. mom would every once in a while sing a solo or play flute in church. My dad would play timpani with the orchestra and stuff. So yeah. music was a big part of their lives. Mm-hmm. I paused because, and this is maybe like foreshadowing, but <clears throat> music was important to them, but music in their mind was never, they never thought of the idea of music being profession. They thought mm-hmm. this is a, a side this is sidecar to the, yeah. to what your life is an important yeah. sidecar but mm-hmm. a sidecar yeah this is a salve for your soul once you come back from breaking your back <laughs> exactly. you know when which once, you must do yeah, which you must yeah absolutely you, you you must find yourselves in the mines wherever they may be you know and get those 16 tons and when you come back this is right. something to you know to loosen up with right you know? and i think i think most cultures probably view it in that capacity because however affluent a culture is or not I think music is a is a certain bedrock, mm-hmm. but is seen as like you do your work in the mines, you do your work in the fields, you mm-hmm. do your work in the plant, whatever. And then at the end of the day, mm-hmm. people at the bar they sing their songs. And oh yeah. Well, yeah, and of course, you know, the modern twenty twentieth century, twenty first century stuff has been pushed towards us being just a bunch of indolent, you know, intravenous drug users slash alcoholics slash you know. Doing, doing like a Rolling Alcoholics Stones. Alcoholics, Alcoholics, he said. Cheers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, that that uh, that we're just indolent and that we don't bust our ass. You know, in a lot of right. ways, you know, like in a lot of ways that that gets perpetuated by us. Right. You know, you know you're kind of like, oh, you know, no, no, no. 
um, this song chose me. Yeah, I'm just the conduit, you know? <laughs> right. It tapped me on the shoulder and it said, you. And Man, I... there are so many songwriting sessions that I have where I really do think in my head when we get to the second verse and we've just... Writing a song is not like digging a ditch, but writing a song <laughs> is work. And getting to the second verse and thinking, man, I hear so many stories about how people say, yeah, man, the song just wrote itself. And I like... <laughs> 800 songs in i've never had one of those yet like maybe they will one day but no it's yeah man it's a job yeah the the, the song yeah the song writes itself it just happens to beat my body and brain up in the process <laughs> yeah it's, it's nice and slow whoever it. wants to take credit for it can but i was here and it wasn't easy yeah yeah when did you start playing the piano um it was a requirement i have an older brother and a younger sister and it was uh-huh. a requirement for hodge's children to take piano lessons oh so you're a middle kid huh mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. did you get a little bit of the middle kid syndrome because i'm a middle kid really and the uh, middle kid syndrome is kind of like the the older one can either be the super responsible one or the grew up and mm-hmm. then the younger one is the baby and so right. you're kind of like our the shadow child i think this seems really elementary but since i was three years old i was physically larger than my brother and Either I have not witnessed personally first child, middle child, baby thing, or my physical size determined that I was treated more like a first child than a middle child. Uh-huh. So you totally Isaac'd him. Yeah. I really did. Yeah. Like it, 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 yeah. It. The only thing that I connect the stories that I connect to are n- normally stories of of the first kid, but. But that's probably some masking technique that I use as a middle child, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, but so all three of us had to take piano lessons. So when we moved to Little Rock, I was five. My brother was seven. And I think about a year, year and a half into that, we both started taking piano lessons. And then my sister, who was three years younger, started taking when she was probably five or six. And from the beginning, this is poignant, especially because I have a six-year-old daughter who just started taking piano lessons a mm. couple of weeks ago. And I'm intrigued by how this plays out with her. But from the beginning, I loathed piano lessons. I just, mm. I didn't like it at all. No. What about it? Um, maybe the more fair question is to say I couldn't, I couldn't find anything that I liked about it. So there yeah. wasn't a specific part of it that I didn't like, except I got nothing out of it. So yeah. it was 30 minutes of practice a day that was a waste of 30 minutes. It was a 30 minute or hour lesson that it was a waste. Like every piece of it just didn't bring anything to mm-hmm. me. Um, and at the time, maybe this is normal. I bet you were like this as well, though. But when I, I remember being seven or eight years old and having piano teachers tell my parents or even tell me, you're really gifted at this. You could mm-hmm. really have a career. Th- or not, they didn't say career. You could really go far with this. You should pursue this more. Mm-hmm. And I remember at that time thinking, you're trying to keep your job. Yeah. Like this is, <laughs> you are just trying to perpetuate you teaching the me more lessons. Disenfranchised. I don't think it. I'm good at it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you think I'm good at mm-hmm. it. I think this is all, you're a carpetbagger. Mm-hmm. And you like, I really mm-hmm. never believed him. And every piano teacher I ever had said that. Not the proof is in, in the reality of my life now. I'm a good piano player, but I'm not a great piano player. Mm-hmm. Um like, I just re- really, all along the way, never believed any of them saying I was good. Hmm. Because I feel like maybe I heard them say to my older brother the same thing. Yeah. And he's a good piano player, too. But, like, I just really didn't buy it. Yeah. So life goes on, and then 10 years old hits. I'm, I've probably been taking lessons for four or five years. And this is a very, very stark memory to me. I remember we, uh, I was sitting at the piano, and I was uh, really upset um, but I just didn't want to. I just didn't want to practice that day. And my dad, I think, was. I guess it was a weekend or something. My dad was home early, 
And he sat down on the piano bench with me and he said, David, I want to tell you two things about piano. What? This is stupid. I want to play basketball with my friends. Um, and he said, in, uh, in five, five or six years, you're going to be a teenager. And your body's going to be going through a lot of different changes. And your dynamic with your friends are going to be different. And the world's going to be just a very different and confusing place to you. Mm. And by that time, you will have an understanding for this instrument that will allow you to get those emotions and those feelings out playing the piano. Holy smokes. Yeah. It was really, really profound. He That's said, a... this, this instrument will serve you really well in the next five or six years because it will be this conduit that you'll be able to express who you are and bang out this frustration and your excitement and your confusion. And this instrument will be this conduit, kind of like a spiritual conduit to you, um, while the rest of your friends are bashing in mailboxes or smoking marijuana or whatever wow. stupid thing they'll be doing. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, whatever. I, I, I had no way to contextualize that at all. Mm-hmm. And he said, and the other thing is, this you being able to play piano will totally get you chicks. Oh, dude. So like, tell tell me more. <laughs> uh-huh. Excuse me? I, I, ears perk up. I mean, yeah. these really, and honestly, he's kind of like wins Dad of the Year Award with that Oh, one. yeah. Like, he covers all the no. bases with those two things. No, I think I think you have to pay him, like, a, a manager's fee now. <laughs> I think you really do. <laughs> it is, yeah. It, there's a sunset clause to yes. it, I think. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> That means that I have to take care of him when he gets Alzheimer's. I think that's what the sunset clause is. <laughs> and there it is. There it is. Well, hey, that's the best thing you can tell a kid. I mean, bifurcated, of course. Yeah, you know, exactly. They'll get the chicks. But then also, I mean, I, the the ability to express yourself, I yeah. mean, thoroughly and completely. Did you go all through high school at Little Rock? Like I did. I was, yeah, I, I lived in Little Rock until I was 18. I, the good story would be to say that that moment changed me and yeah. then I fell in love with piano from then on. And that's not really the case. But what did happen, and this is why I'm intrigued by piano lessons with my daughter right now, is that so I took lessons for another three or four years, four or five years, and I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the moment the moment that I didn't have to take lessons anymore, I stopped. Yeah. And my parents have this beautiful, beautiful 100-year-old Steinway baby grand that oh, my grandfather smells. got when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. It's a gorgeous piano. Um, and I... And I didn't touch it for probably about six months. And then October of my sophomore year in high school, I was 15 years old. I was about to turn 16. And I was sitting in a biology class. I remember sitting in Mr. Salmon's biology class. It, it was pronounced Salmon. Salmon. Oh, no. Um, like Rushdie? Kind of? Yeah, okay. <laughs> totally, exactly. <laughs> so I'm sitting in class, and this melody starts coming through my head. And I remember I remember at the time thinking, like, what was, what's that song? I, I, can't, I can't place what that song is. And as the afternoon went on, I had this sense of like, you know what? I don't think this is a song. I don't mm. think I've heard heard this melody before. And I came home from school, and I went up to the piano. First time I had touched the piano in six months. And I sat down, and my dad was right. I knew the instrument well enough to be able to kind of voice out a sense of what this melody was. Mm-hmm. And that day, I wrote a song. Oh. And it was... I think the song was called I Love You or something awful, something incredibly generic and terrible. It was a, I think a lot of people want to hear stories of like, the first song I wrote (laughs) was called Imagine. But it doesn't work out like that. And honestly, it's a, I think a more romantic story Mm -hmm. that that normal people have where it was like, yeah, I started on this journey because I was convinced that afternoon, like when I sat down at the dinner table that night after spending two hours at the piano, I was, I'm sold. I was in. Mm -hmm. That was the thing that I was going to do for the rest of my life. Um, and then almost every moment of my high school years after that was a pursuit of that thing. 
I would wake up in the morning and I would drudge through school just so I could get home to sit at the piano and to mm. create something out of nothing again. Wow. And I, I would get an allowance or, or scrounge together money not to go, I don't know what teenagers spend money on, not to go, not to go buy the new Candlebox record, mm-hmm. but to go buy the songbook of Sting's Ten Summoner's Tales yeah. so I could learn how he put chords together to tell the stories that he told. Yeah. Like I was just... As much it, with the limited resources that I had in the mid '90s as a kid in Arkansas, I was just consuming as much as I could about learning about the craft of songwriting. Hmm. Did you have that moment with Fields of Gold where it just turned your guts inside out oh. as a kid, and you're crying as a kid, and you go like, "What is this?" <laughs> I mean, and the the beautiful part is that's not even the best like shape of my heart. Yeah, even yeah. more like takes pulls that mm-hmm. out of you. Uh, I mean. That record's mm-hmm. crazy, but yeah, I was I was hooked. Mm-hmm. I was totally I was hooked so much to the point that when I turned eighteen and went to college, I went to college for a couple of years, and I wasn't a music major for the sp- specific purpose that I knew I was going to be doing music for the rest of my life, and I almost knew that I wasn't ready yeah. to enter into that space because I knew that the moment it became the centerpiece, it would never not be that. Yeah. So I was a history major for a couple of years. Yeah. And I, it really was like this f- switch that flipped in my head after my sophomore year of college. I was like, okay, you're good. now let's do music forever. Wow. That's interesting because I was an English major. Oh, really? For the very reason that, uh, I mean, I, I, I started out for the first six days of college as a music major. And the college that I went to, uh, right. they said like, oh, here's your schedule. And I said like, well, I see I've got this class here and it doesn't offer any credits. And they said, oh, no, that's just uh, music theory that everybody has to go through. It's, but you don't get credits but you for don't music get credit theory? Because... because <laughs> Because by law they can't give you too much. They can't give you over eighteen credits or twenty-one. Oh, credits. right. And so they just over. They just packed it and said, "This is part of the thing." And they had a MIDI lab, and this is like you know, two thousand one, <laughs> two thousand like. And I was like, "Oh, this is really." Uh, uh, I don't know. So <laughs> but I thought that. But, but you guys, though, you guys <laughs> ended up being an English major because I got to read books all day about Madame Bovary. Where did you go to school? I went to Zusa Pacific. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you went to where? Oklahoma Baptist. Oklahoma Baptist. So Christian school kids. Mm-hmm. I remember. Yeah, there it is. I, yeah. I remember smoking cigarettes out in front of the sign and putting them out on the A of Azusa. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I mean, and this is the shittiest thing because I was thought I was being so rebellious, right? But totally elective. I like <laughs> college is not yeah required. So mm-hmm. I'm paying thousands of dollars mm-hmm. to shit on these people. I think it's the the best thing. I went to a, a private Baptist high school. That for many reasons I loathe. But mm. one of the best things they did was they tricked me into thinking the stuff that I was doing that I thought was rebellious mm-hmm. really wasn't rebellious at all. Oh. Like, I didn't even, uh, drugs and alcohol wasn't even considered mm-hmm. in my brain when I was in high school because I was too busy, like, subtly breaking dress code rules, you know? <laughs> and I think, and at the time, I thought, like, oh, I'm standing up on the outside but i'm sitting down on the inside but the whole time the principal and the staff there were like as long as he thinks that he's being rebellious let <laughs> him do whatever he dance. wants yeah <laughs> so i tip my hat to you Pr- principal stokes and they, oh look oh principal stokes mm-hmm. man yeah look it all comes full circle mm-hmm. so after two years of college mm-hmm. in that moment that um parenthetical moment where you said all right i'm good mm-hmm. i know? got this yeah yeah and then then from there was there a specific thing that was leading you away or did you just basically go like i can't do anymore right i um 
Gosh, I feel like I'm giving you the long version of all these things, but hey, no, no, you're, maybe you're, this is what podcasts are for. This is what podcasts are for, man. Um, I grew up listening to Christian music, oh. and a big influence of mine in high school, in junior high and high school, was Michael W. Smith. Oh, yeah. I play piano. He plays piano. Mm-hmm. Um, you're both good looking guys. We both have, we're both white people with brown hair. Yeah, you both have a lot of kids. <laughs> well, that's later. That's later. I'm that's following later. the path. Yeah. <laughs> so I, um, so I don't, one, one part of my story that may be different than a lot of other musicians is I, I was never in bands in high school. It was always mm. just me and a piano. I honestly didn't know a single person around me that wrote music. Really? I had a couple of friends that would kind of start bands and they would play other people's music mm-hmm. and I just had no interest in it. Whether it was Kurt Cobain or Beethoven, I didn't care about playing other people's music. Yeah. Yeah, you didn't want to be a cover band. So was there right. any scene in Little Rock really at all to speak? Not of? really. I mean, there was And and I Going back to the Sting songbook thing, I wasn't learning Sting. I didn't wasn't buying Sting songbooks to learn how to play. If I ever lose my faith in you, mm-hmm. I was buying them to learn how he did the process of writing. So really, everything was about creation for me. It wasn't about it wasn't about mimicking someone else's thing. Yeah. And I obviously would mimic styles from people, but it was all mm-hmm. about like me writing songs and learning that process. It's almost the equivalent of buying a BMW to figure out how they do, did the carburetor. Right, exactly, know? yeah. So I could make my own car. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So there was, no, there wasn't much of a music scene. There was a band that came out of Little Rock called Living Sacrifice. Uh-huh. That was, and I, I could be wrong, but I think like a very big incredible band in the christian like a tooth and nail band metal scene but even heavier than tooth and nail okay like they were straight they were well, solid state that was a bit that was the right. heavier than than tooth and nail yeah, yeah. and i honestly think they were somehow related to that dude i know man i had songs from the penalty box i'm a christian kid <laughs> you know, I, know I know what's going on <laughs> you know like if you like sepultura you'll love yeah, yeah. living sacrifice and this is really what living sacrifice was um it was really, really heavy stuff. I, I honestly, I know of Living Sacrifice from two different angles, one of which my best friend in the third grade was a guy named Chad Truby, and I remember going over to his house. We, we went to a Christian school, and I remember going over to his house to spend the night on Friday nights, and his older brothers who were, they couldn't, I mean, I guess maybe they were 10 years older than us. Maybe they were, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 years old, mm-hmm. but they were in a band, I think at the time, called Archangel. <laughs> I already love his name. And his older brothers were uh, Jason and mm-hmm. Chad's older brothers were Jason and Chris True. I think it was Chris. Anyway, and and they were the ones who started Living Sacrifice mm-hmm. with Bruce Fitzhugh. And Jason ended up going on to play guitar for POD for a while. He's oh, yeah. an unbelievable guitar player. But at the time, I remember being eight years old and going over to Chad's house. And they were in their room. And like, if the door was cracked open, like we'd sneak over and listen. And it was the most terrifying music <laughs> I'd ever heard in my entire life. It was so scary. Satanist for Jesus, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't like Striper. Like It yeah. was like some scary, really heavy oh, rock and roll. Yeah, totally. So... I say all that to say I that's the only if I were to say there was a scene of music in Little Rock Living Sacrifice was the only version of a scene that I could see which yeah. is a, obviously a very niche market of yeah, music it really is. Christian heavy metal there's a few there, there's select few <laughs> I mean honestly I mean if we're gonna take, take a Venn diagram of the whole world right we're gonna cut it down yeah heavy metal Christians <laughs> that's a tiny sliver a little, in the middle yeah. a little bit so 
um, so there wasn't to, to me there was no music scene like it yeah. was just it was a vacuum it was yeah. a suburban vacuum in yeah. which you like were left to germinate your own verisimilitude which know? in in many ways I think was really beautiful another caveat of my childhood is that uh, my parents didn't allow any secular music in our house so I grew mm-hmm. up on and it's funny it wasn't definitely no secular music, but also no heavy Christian music either. Interesting. Any music with a significant backbeat, I know this sounds silly, but yeah. was not allowed in my house. This coming from the guy that is founding member of Evanescence. It's weird, right? That's weird, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I mean, so there was a season of my life where I would have to um, kind of audition music for my dad. The problem mm-hmm. was I had a very limited budget. And mm. to audition the music, I had to purchase it. Oh no! And then, and, and then probably eight and out of ten make records, you throw it away. Yeah, eight out of ten records would end up in the trash. Oh my gosh, it was rough. Mm. Um, and since then, my dad and I laugh about it. And he was like, "If I had known you were going to be in the music business, I probably would have given you a little bit more liberty <laughs> in this area." But but it did create, I think, a very good thing in me, which was it made me critique the music that I was listening to. Maybe not on the metrics that that my parents cared about, mm-hmm. but it. But it, from a very early age, I thought about the music I was listening to. Yeah. It wasn't just like I'm just ingesting what is this? whatever the people around me ingest. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think that Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood, is not a good album. No. Uh, listen, you're talk, You're preaching to the choir yeah. here. I mean, like, I, the, the entire ethos of Motley Crue, I don't understand. Makes no sense. Yeah, like, I, I have a very powerful mother who uh, like went to college and is, got her master's, and my sister's got her doctorate. Like, why are we, why are we asking these women to stand on a pole while we... <laughs> While we put whiskey in our veins via like the dirty needle that we already used for like a a, a bump of, and if we're gonna do that, let's not celebrate it. Let's yeah. at least call Let, it what it is. Let's 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 dar- delve down deep and dark into ourselves. <laughs> let's let's write novels, not hair metal. Yeah, yeah. But it, honestly, this is the funny thing though. I love I love Def Leppard. Uh-huh. I love Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. Like, there were so f- I think for friends of mine in that era that were just kind of consuming whatever, mm-hmm. there were certain things that I really liked. Maybe I wasn't allowed to listen to at the time or whatever, or discovered later. But <clears throat> I liked them on on a I liked them for a reason, yeah. As opposed to just like taking them in because everybody else is, yeah. So it started me on this journey where. I may have been at the time listening to some things that were similar to my friends, but I was also listening to Cat Stevens. Yeah. I was also listening to Billy Joel. I was also mm-hmm. listening to Sting or whatever. Um, that was a tangent. Mm-hmm. Hey, so, that's what this is for. That's what this is for. So, so anyway, so oh, that's what it was. Michael W. Smith mm-hmm. as a present from my parents, some sort of present, my junior year of high school. My mother checks me out of school on a Tuesday, and she says, we're driving down to Dallas. Mm -hmm. Dallas is the big city for for people in Little Rock. So we we drive down to Dallas to go see Michael W. Smith in Mm -hmm. concert, opening up for Michael W. Smith as Jars of Clay, my other new favorite band at the time. And uh, I'd never really been to like a big concert before, because again, being from Little Rock, there's not much that comes through. Maybe maybe something at the state fair or whatever. Yeah. and on our drive down there, we had some friends who lived in Dallas, and they said, hey, we just heard on the local Christian station that Michael W. Smith and Joseph Clay are doing a Q&A before the show tonight at this Christian bookstore. I'm freaking out. Yeah. Because I'm like, I'm going to see Michael W. Smith 
he's going to look at me and be like, you're my young protege. Uh-huh. You're going to have a lot of kids one day. We're uh-huh. going to high-five and become <laughs> bros. I'm going to hop on the bus with him. Yeah. Um, so we go to this Christian bookstore, and it's just completely packed all the way through, and they're yeah. sitting at this table in the back. And they di- they do some some questions, and I raise my hand emphatically as a 17-year-old, knowing that this is my one and only moment. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the crystalline moment in time. This is it. This mm-hmm. is the thing. And I raised my hand, and I, um, and they called on me, and I said, uh, "Mr. Smith, um, Mr. W. Smith, <laughs> uh, what what advice would you give to a burgeoning songwriter about how to break into the Christian music business?" I had just learned the word burgeoning that day, and I oh, really nice. wanted to use it. In dude, my question. dude, under eighteen using burgeoning, I yeah. think you need a permit for that. I was gonna go with verisimilitude, and I thought yeah, this feels heavy. Dial it back a little it bit. Feels like a lot. Yeah, this isn't a Burian store. This is just a regular Christian bookstore. <laughs> Keep it cool, Hodges. Um, and he said, when I, he said when I was your age, or when I was uh, graduating from high school, my parents gave me uh, a ticket to go to Estes Park, Colorado, to go to what was called, I think, I think at the time it was called Artists in the Rockies. It was a Christian music, national Christian music competition. Mm-hmm. And there was essentially only two of these a year. This one in Colorado and then for GMA week, like around the Dove Awards Mm -hmm. in Nashville. And that was a little bit more members only. But this one in Estes Park, essentially, if you paid the fee, you could be part of the competition. Wow. And he said, I went to this competition and I failed miserably, but it made me... Uh, it gave me enough courage to enter into the process of... And so and then I drove my car to Nashville and the story goes from there. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I looked at my mom, and I was like, well, we both know what I want for graduation now. Interesting. And I, that summer, yes, I think it was that summer, so it was still my junior year, I, I ended up going to this Estes Park competition. And I remember entering, there was a two or three different song writing categories, pop and gospel and worship or something mm-hmm. like that. And I remember entering songs into these categories. And the way that it would work out is that there was a panel of four or five judges sitting at a table um, and there was a room full of people that were contestants and friends and family of the contestants and whoever wanted to kind of straggle in. And they had a little jam box. Yeah. And they would they would pick up a cassette tape and they would say, uh, David Hodges, I love you, baby. Who's David Hodges? Mm-hmm. And you would sheepishly raise your hand and they were like, okay. And they would stick it in and they would listen to it. And they would, unlike A&R people, they would usually listen to the whole song, mm-hmm. but sometimes they would stop it after like, verse and chorus or whatever. And then they would give their notes on it. And it was just brutal. Just just eviscerating. I mean, just... And looking back on it, it probably actually wasn't. Mm -hmm. They probably were just a bunch of terrible songs that people were turning in. And they were like, look, Mm -hmm. this is awful. Like, they Mm -hmm. giving the best advice that they could. And I remember uh, having one song that made it to the finals, which means that it was live audition Mm -hmm. of the song. Um, A lot of songs before that got cut and so it was only the top 20 songs in each category or so that made it to there so having a song in the finals i was really excited about yeah and then i realized oh my gosh this is going to be terrible they're going to eviscerate me in front of all these other people and they put my song in and they listened to it and they completely eviscerated me it was terrible (laughs) and then (laughs) yeah i know this is like one of those things and the moral of the story and 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 no nothing rocky yeah rocky he lasted the distance and he lost and it was really rough yeah (laughs) He didn't even get a medal for a place. He didn't get an honorable mention. So that happened, and the next year, I remember this is this shows the limited 
the limited scope of the world that David Hodges had at 17 or 18 years old. I remember at the end of the week, they had this award ceremony mm -hmm. because it was songwriting and it was performances and it was bands and it mm -hmm. was a bunch of different things. And then the last night of the of the week, all the winners got to perform. Yeah. And actually looking back on it, it was pretty remarkable. The whole week long, every night there were concerts. Yeah. And the biggest names in all of Christian music were there for every night. I mean, whether you think they're big or not, but like Stephen Curtis Chapman and Michael W. Smith mm -hmm. and Amy Grant and Point of Grace and Jars of Clay and just... Mm. Uh, Titans in that time. I mean, really the DC talk was there. There was not, there was no Christian artist that was too big for that arena. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a pretty, I mean, there was probably 500 people that came to this thing. Dang. So these, it was just for the concerts alone, it was pretty impressive if you wanted to be in the Christian music business. So anyway, at the end of the week, I remember sitting, they had it almost like in a gymnasium that they did the award ceremony. And I remember sitting there and I've only done this, I don't know, a handful of times in my life, but I was like, dear Lord, <laughs> if you could just give me like a third place trophy at one of these, I will be your loyal servant for all of time. <laughs> That's all I want. Because I would see people go up and get their awards and there was a, every music publisher in the Christian music industry, every A&R person was there for this week. Yeah. They really were scouting talent because this was obviously well well before the YouTube and MySpace and all those Yeah, things. they just had word of mouth. Yeah. And that's it, man. Mm -hmm. Word mm -hmm. of mouth. You see that? There we go. I see what you did there. You, you Kevin Max that <laughs> all the way. <laughs> so, I mean, really like, Lord, this is it. Mm -hmm. So the next year I went back and uh, I uh, and my family's with me when we go because it's, a you know, Colorado vacation for them and mm -hmm. I go to the competitions during the day and I have I think two maybe two or three songs that made it into the the finals this time and I'd learned from the last year and I've been writing songs a year long and I um and I had uh I think a song got third place or something okay and I was yeah. like all right. all right. And no one really cared about me. And I didn't get to perform the uh, the last night because you have to actually win to, to perform. But I was like, okay, I think I'm figuring this thing out. Mm -hmm. and, then, and the next year I went back. Yeah, it must have been my senior year because this was after my sophomore year in high school now that I went back this third time. This mm -hmm. is all actually does tie in. But um, I went back again. And going to school at Oklahoma Baptist, a precursor to all this, Oklahoma Baptist is almost like this vetting ground for a lot of Christian artists. If you don't go to school really? in Nashville, Charlie Hall and uh, mm -hmm. Watermark, uh, Christy and Nathan Knuckles yeah. from OBU and uh, like just like Crowder and Tomlin, all those, a lot of those passion guys are kind of connected through that circuit. Interesting. And so I was around that world a good bit and OBU had these, their own talent competitions and I started to do well in those and was involved with different musical things there and thinking that it was a big pond and it, it was actually a very small pond, but I felt like I was doing really well in that space. And then I go to this Estes park the third year and I just cleaned up. <laughs> I honestly, charm? I think I won. I mean, I tout this like it's a thing, but I think I won first place in every one of the, <laughs> the songwriting competitions. I mean, I just mopped it mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you were able to triangulate, man. You were able to figure like that worked. Okay, that worked better. Better, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was really learning. Yeah, I really felt like, okay, I've had my struggles, mm -hmm. but I've made it now. Here yeah. Yeah. I've got the EGOT I'm of <laughs> Artist of the Rockies. <laughs> oh, man. So 
Um, man, for those listening that don't know anything about Christian music, I mm. feel like this is the most boring segment of the whole bit. But well, I, feel I think like they're it... thoroughly fascinated that, to understand that, like, <laughs> underneath the underbelly of everything that they know to be true mm-hmm. is an entire scene, an industry. A whole them, thing. I remember, and I've told this before on my podcast, that there was a... Like a list in my in in the the youth group room, mm-hmm. like it, of all the secular artists, that if you liked them, then you could. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. The the, the, the Christian, you're like, hey, listen, you don't have to listen to Smashing Pumpkins. Why don't you listen to Starflyer Fifty Nine? That's way <laughs> if better. If you like Radiohead, um, you'll love John Q. Public. Listen, we all love Dulcinea. It's a great it's a great <laughs> record and all that stuff. But you know what? PFR is a little bit. Nothing better. touches Dulcinea. <laughs> Nothing. Sorry. Oh, you know, I had the opportunity to. Uh, I uh, I was stayed the night at his house, at at, at Lu- Glenn's house. At Glenn's house. That's fantastic. And and he uh, he said like I don't have any more room in here because I was on tour with another artist. He said, you can just sleep in my studio. I was like I can sleep in your <laughs> studio. There's not a better place I could. It was amazing. I was hoping that some of it would rub off on me. That's yeah. And then I ended up uh, like I woke up and like I thought the middle of the night because it was completely dark and silent, no windows, completely soundless. And I thought I can get used to this. And it was ten o'clock in the morning. It was incredible. Oh, Oh, it was great. It was. It was serious. Dulcinea is the other like the yen to the yang of Tin Summoner's Tales. Yeah. It was those two albums for me. Yeah. Nothing so loud. God. It gets me. Yeah, man. It was good. Oh, so. So the third year, I just mop up. All these publishers are coming up to me, handing mm-hmm. me their cards. Mm-hmm. Hey, if you're ever in Nashville, I'm like, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. So this is happening in like late July, early August, and I had already enrolled to go to school at Belmont. So I was already transferring. Okay. So I'd already made the switch in my head. That's mm-hmm. like, okay, now it's time. I'm 20 years old. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to Nashville. And so I, I'm telling all of these publishers, like, I'm going to be there in two months. And they're like, look me up when you come to town. I'd love to ha- take a meeting with you. Mm-hmm. and You can come to the office or whatever. And I was like, all right, it's happening. Yeah. So that happens. I get to perform a song in the last night. All of my dreams are coming true. Yeah. And I go to Nashville a month later, and I'm just on cloud nine. Everything's great in the world. And actually, as another side to that story, I had met a girl that summer. I was... Uh, Working at my church that summer as like a youth intern, like you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. the other youth intern that I was working with, we fell in love and we were so happy. Um, and what I realized looking back on it is if you're in an environment where you only see the best of a person, when you only see a person serving other people at church, <laughs> yeah. Literally, it's just a little bit rose colored. At glasses. the bread line, you know, <laughs> literally, like with the tongs handing out. So, yeah. anyway. So I've I've met the girl of my dreams. I'm mm-hmm. getting married. Mm-hmm. I'm sure of it. And and my career is all coming together. Mm-hmm. All is well in the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dance card's full, man. It is happening. <laughs> it is all happening. And I've done some real struggling by 20 years old. I mean, I it's mean, been a rough road. There was Dave. a brief little bit of acne. That went away. <laughs> that was, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I had braces for like three solid years. Deep yeah. in the throes of oral corrective surgery. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I moved to Nashville. And I go to school at Belmont. And I know that there will be talented musicians there. Mm-hmm. But I just know that I'm talented her. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> so don't worry about it. We've got this covered. It's okay. And I get to school at Belmont. And I, uh, I don't mean to blame Belmont for this. It's not their fault. Mm-hmm. But it was the worst semester of my life. It was, yeah. And I think I probably will go to my grave saying that was the worst six months of my life. Huh. Um, because I, it was the first moment in my life that I was actually in a big pond before. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, until you're in a big pond, you don't have any sense of, like, everything is related to what you know. And so it's like, 
this is a big enough pond, right? I mean, yeah. there's 350,000 people in Little Rock. Yeah. That's like a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? I can't count them all. I can't. I don't know them all. Mm-hmm. I'm related to most of them, but mm-hmm. I don't know them all. <laughs> um, so I get to Nashville, and I remember very specifically thinking I'm a piano player, I'm a singer, I'm a songwriter. Yeah. And and at the at Belmont, I was in a piano studio with probably uh, 10 other people, mm-hmm. and I was easily... 10 on the 10 list. I mm-hmm. was lowest. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, so I'm not a great piano player. Okay. Uh, keep rolling. But you know what? You know what? Hey, see him turn a phrase. I can turn a <laughs> phrase. You know what I can do? Mm-hmm. And then I was in a, a songwriting class, which looking back on it was pretty bogus, but I was in a songwriting class. And I remember I just couldn't connect the dots at all with that. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, okay, so this maybe isn't my bag. Singing. And unfortunately, of the three, I thought, singing I'm not the best at. <laughs> singing, I was in a studio of probably eight or ten singers, and they were all unbelievable, like Stevie Wonder-style <laughs> singers, just unbelievable singers. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> so I'm the worst here, too. Uh-huh. And uh, and about a month and a half into school, uh, my girlfriend broke up with me um, on her birthday after I drove eight hours to, to surprise her for her birthday at school. It's amazing was, how those realizations it was happen. Fantastic. On those, yeah, just just a little button right yeah. there. Like if there was a time that I felt like John Cusack in a John Hughes movie, this mm-hmm. was that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it all just it all came crashing down in a startling reality with your ghetto blaster held aloft. <laughs> exactly. But it was playing. I feel like it was playing something from Dulcinea. Um, so, so it really was a like the identity that I had formed for myself completely fell apart in the course of literally like ninety days. And what I had thought incorrectly at the time was, if I can't make it, if I if I can't compete as a player in Nashville, there's no way that I can compete as a player in New York or in LA or in London mm-hmm. or in, in any kind of like national or international mm-hmm. space. And looking back on it, the best players in the world mm-hmm. in the world live in Nashville. Like maybe the best violinist lives in Vienna, but like the yeah. best drummers and piano players and bass players, and guitar mm-hmm. players, they all live in Nashville. Like, yeah. It really is a remarkable space for, for the technical aspect and you know what even if they don't right now eventually they will end eventually up there they they, they, well that's probably because we all will eventually live well, yeah, it's, yeah. it's gonna fold in upon itself yeah but um so i was just completely distraught because i had spent 21 years leading up to being the next uh michael w smith yeah and this was your big debutante ball and then this yeah. is the thing and I, and and i met with all those people that had said hey come meet with me and mm-hmm. every one of them uh said these songs are good. Mm-hmm. You have a sense. You have a sense of where you're going, but none none of them are great, and you just need to keep writing. Mm-hmm. It's like, but I'm 21. I'm about to be old. <laughs> yeah, in rock and roll years, yeah. I'm nearly dead. <laughs> I've got six more years before I die of a drug overdose. Literally, I will die. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I felt so. It was the old. I was the oldest 21 year old in the world. Oh, it really yeah. was, except for the fact that every musician does this thing mm-hmm. in their early 20s, and. Um, and I had met a friend back in Little Rock about a year and a half before, and he was a high school dropout. Um, but he and his girlfriend had a band they were putting together, and she was a couple of years younger, so she was probably a sophomore in high school at the time. And uh, they were making these seven-minute goth ballad anthems. Mm-hmm. And they just 
the songs didn't make any sense. Hmm. But you could even tell at the time that there was something there. Yeah. Um, and they were called Childish Intentions for a while. And then, then they switched their name to Evanescence. And I was <clears throat> pursuing my path. And Ben and I became friends. We could not have been more different in the world. Like, hmm. I was a poster child for Abercrombie, except for, like, the pretty parts. Mm-hmm. But I wore other clothes. <laughs> and, and, I, and I was in a fraternity when I went to school at Oklahoma Baptist. And, uh, and Ben was the kid that was never accepted in high school mm-hmm. and, and wore all black clothes. and Read the Necronomicon. Yeah. 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 I mean, completely. His favorite band was Typo Negative. Okay, And yeah, that's yeah. like a misnomer. No one's favorite band can be Typo Negative. It's, <laughs> it's not even allowed. And personally impossible. <laughs> if you're in the band Typo Negative, you can't have your favorite band. No, they're really just like Ozzy. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, so Ben and I became buddies, not because I liked his music, but because I... Because you can tell, like, there's not that talented people find each other, mm-hmm. but that you can, most people can spot talent. Mm-hmm. And I could just tell that he had a thing. Well, there seems to be a light that comes through people, you know, yeah. it, it, whatever artifice we put on ourselves, whatever, like, language or, you know, click or whatever and stuff, there's something that shines through all that. And you kind of go like, oh, you, you've got that thing, too. That, yeah. bit, that bit of weird eternity that yeah. we're all trying to, like, seek and search for. You got that, too. I mean, you're doing something else that I wouldn't do with it. Far, I mean, far from. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it, the, what I love about it, too, is that it's part, it's part talent. It's part wild delusion that mm-hmm. anyone ever could care about this or like it. Yeah. And then it's also part just like ambition that he will continue to chase it. Yeah. Because I had, that's another piece that I had never met. Mm-hmm. I had met friends of mine who were musicians, mm-hmm. but no one who actually really gave a shit. Yeah. You know? Tenacity. And yeah. So to find someone who was like, oh, you're crazy enough to think that this is going to work. Mm-hmm. You know what's crazy? So am I. Like, uh-huh. we both have that thing in common. And so Ben had a little eight-track player, and for the, the two summers before that, he would help me record my music. And I, looking back on it, I think it's uh, really funny because I, it's almost as if the music I was making was like the opposite of the music that he wanted to make. And he wouldn't ever charge me for it. We, we would just hang out together, and, and he would help me record my music. Mm-hmm. And I was obviously really grateful to him for it. And, I, and he would play me stuff that he and his girlfriend were doing and and I would comment on it or whatever, and he and I would hang out. Mm. Because I was, I think, honestly, his only friend in the world. Mm. Not because he was looking for a friend, but it's because he was looking for like-minded. He was looking for weirdos like him. Yeah, in Little Rock. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So so we had been buddies for about a year and a half, and I remember calling him up, and I was like, man, this, I can't hang. I'm not as good as I thought I was. Um, and I... I think I'm done. No, I didn't call him. That's not true. I was home for fall break or for Thanksgiving, one of the two. Mm-hmm. And I and I and he and I were it's, we were by his parents' house, and I remember we were walking around outside. That's what it was. So it was kind of cold outside, and I was like, I think I'm I I think I'm gonna drop out of school. Like mm-hmm. I think I, either I'll drop out of school or I'll kill myself. Like <laughs> I gotta I gotta get out of this. And he said, Yeah, that's a bummer. Um, I just got a gig at this local voiceover place that does jingles and voiceovers for local commercials. He's like, man, I'm 17 years old and I dropped out of high school and I have, they're paying me $31,000 a year back then. And I get my own room. I get my own room to work out of. I got to record these people singing these silly jingles and I got to turn it in. He was like, I think I'm going to give up on the band thing. I think I'm going to grow up. 
Oh, and gosh. again, it's like 20-year-old David, 17-year-old Ben, uh-huh. both going like, I think it's time to grow up now. You know? <laughs> Enter the real world. Yeah. And I said to Ben, dude, you can't quit the band. And I remember th- saying something to him in the effect of like, it wasn't like, you can't quit the band, you guys are great, because they weren't. Mm-hmm. I was like, you can't quit the band because you're on to something. Okay. And he essentially said, and then he said, why don't we make music together? Because yeah. I was the only person that he knew not that he thought could make Evanescence music, but could make good music, you know? Yeah. And so it wasn't even with the intention of like, hey, join the band and let's be Evanescence together. It was like, hey, let's make music together and see what we come up with. Yeah. <clears throat> and I was like, okay, cool. And then I went, remember going back to school for a month and I just didn't care about school anymore. The only mm-hmm. thing I cared about was making music with my friend back home because I knew that there was potential there. And in the space that I was in, there was no potential there anymore. Even yeah. after being in... Nashville for only a couple months I was like this is a dead end I can't mm-hmm. do this um, so I went back home for Christmas and I remember Ben bringing over this Frankenstein computer to the house to my parents house and we sat we sat around for five or six days and we just made music together and it was the most exciting thing that I had ever done because mm. I had never had an I never had an instrument where I could be aggressive before yeah, and it was exciting to make music that was of a different emotional palette for me, beyond just. I mean, the piano is like it's the piano. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, and and again, I'm not a great piano player, so it's like I had a limited mm-hmm. skill set of like the range of of. Music it's the typewriter play. of all music, is what I like to say. Okay, you know, it, like if if say you know a 1960s gold top Les Paul is mm-hmm. is whatever that is. Okay, that, let's call that. An insane, bizarre quill pen, you know, mm-hmm. maybe like John Adams used in mm-hmm. that style. Then you've got a typewriter, you know, that 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 is easy and quick and fast to be able to to communicate to every single other instrument right. what needs to happen. Right. But at the same time, it shoulders a lot of weight and doesn't get to have its own due. And yeah. unless you strip everything else away and then get a little arty with it, you know. Right. And I knew that I didn't have, I didn't have the technique. To be able to do with the piano what Tori Amos did or what mm-hmm. Fiona Apple did. Like, I, my skills. Well, let's be honest. With those girls, it's a lot of heavy breathing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Okay. Let's get to it. <laughs> Honestly, the fascinating thing, I think for both of them, but especially Tori for me, was she played so rarely with a sustain pedal. Yeah. I can't do that. No, no, no. I need, I I need, need to blend those I need that together. air. I need yeah. that air. And it was, <laughs> let's just smooth this over. Give me a little bit of space here. Yeah, that's my Photoshop blur tool. Yeah, it I, is. You know? It's totally- <laughs> it completely is that and that's why organ will never sing to me no, it's like, no, I need no, no. a sustain wait there's nothing there's nothing you mean it's like it's yes or no it's binary I don't like that I'm not a fan yeah, what is this whole on off thing I don't, <laughs> I don't like that so so Ben and I started making music together and I promptly dropped out of school and my and I moved in with Ben to his apartment and a buddy of mine got me a job at Circuit City Oh, wow. And I worked, I sold computers at Circuit City for about uh, seven months. And How was that seven months, man? It was, it didn't matter. The only thing that mattered to me in that time, and this is where I really tip my hat to the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done the math of it. I So Ben and I started working in December of, of 99. And the only thing that mattered to me in all of the universe, I mean, I burned every bridge that I could with my parents and with my friends and everything mm. else like 
I was like a meth addict. Like, I yeah. think I stole my parents' TV to buy gear oh, for man. our computer. Like it was, I was obsessed. Not with being famous, not with being successful, not with making money in music, but I was ex- I was obsessed with chasing this muse that Ben and I both shared. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and it wasn't the three of us. Like the more romantic story is to say that Ben and Amy and I all chased this thing together. We didn't. Amy was in high school at the time, and she would come over for two hours in the afternoon and sing on stuff. And mm-hmm. Amy is wildly talented, but this was mine and Ben's journey. Yeah. We lived together. We both would go to work at 9 in the morning. We both would come home at 4 or 5. We both would stay up till 3 or 4 in the morning making this music. Yeah. And whether it was good or bad was inconsequential. We were chasing this thing down. It was the best music we had ever heard. Mm -hmm. And we were uh, so excited about what we were discovering every night as we were writing these songs and rewriting these songs and replaying the parts. And I mean, it was all on a, the funny thing is it was all on a computer. We never had neighbors banging on the walls cause we weren't playing through mm-hmm. guitar cabs. We were, it was a keyboard and him playing electric guitar through a zoom rack mount unit. Yeah. Like it yeah. was, uh, and two headphones on and two headphones mm-hmm. on. Yeah. And we were, it was the loudest, most immersive thing in the world to us, but it really was two nerdy kids sitting around a computer screen. Wow. And, and we did that for about seven months um, and just chased it down. And, it, and we would, like, we were angry every time we had to eat and go to the bathroom. Like, <laughs> we were just obsessed mm-hmm. with making this music. And Amy was definitely a part of it, but the hours of it and the experimentation and the journey of it was really just a lot of me and Ben. Not, I mean, I think if Amy could have been there, she would have, but she mm-hmm. was She's a, a kid, kid in high, high school. school. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and that was the season of my life where my parents and I didn't get along because, um, because music had always been a hobby to them and they mm-hmm. wanted it to be a, an important hobby to me. But the idea of it being my job or my life mm-hmm. became a maniacal obsession. Yeah. yeah. And they were, and this is, cheap and reasonable i would do the same thing as a parent they were like but you could be a doctor Mm -hmm. it's like well i don't care and they're like no no no. you're you're a smart kid you could do Mm -hmm. things yeah it's like well me being dumb or smart doesn't matter like Mm -hmm. this is all i want to do and they're like i know but Mm -hmm. to them i think most musicians didn't have other options yeah Mm-hmm. It's like you work in the coal mines mm-hmm. because you can't work in the office. Yeah. And so music was the same thing. Like you play music because you can't keep a steady job. It's like, yeah. David, you're not a drug addict. You don't have to be a musician. <laughs> <laughs> you got all your teeth. You're a reasonably good looking boy. What's you, wrong with you? Yeah. You you can form full sentences. What's mm-hmm. the big deal? Yeah. And that was, I think, just a, a, a hard season with my relationship with them. Mm. Because this was the thing that I w- wanted to chase down, and the and, obsession, of course, probably like I've nerved them. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. completely. And also the side of it too, where it's like I don't like you making this dark rock and roll music, mm-hmm. and I don't know if I like the company that you're hanging around with. And again, I think all of their trepidation about that was reasonable. But uh, but this is why I think it's just a necessary part of growing up too, mm. like. <clears throat> if it's all easy for a friend of mine is convinced that he has this theory that all good music, all good art requires limitation. Hmm. How so? Like, uh, 
Um, and the the easy the obvious limitation is your band sucks. You mm-hmm. have no money. Yeah. Um, prove to me that your band doesn't suck. That's mm-hmm. a real limitation. Prove to me that you can pay your rent. That's a real limitation. So yeah. I think a lot of that's why a lot of bands their first album is brilliant because mm-hmm. they have these serious like I can't get calories in my body kind of limitations. Yeah. My art is not recognized by the people around me kind of limitations. Mm-hmm. I have to prove my father and my mother wrong. Right, right. My very life choices. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like the foundation of my existence mm-hmm. I have to push against to to prove that the art that I'm creating ha- is valid. And then after and then if you do that, your next album is terrible because it's like well, I have a house in the Hollywood Hills, mm-hmm. and everyone thinks I'm awesome. What's mm-hmm. my limitation now? Mm-hmm. That's why there's the sophomore slump, or that's why most artists. That's why. Oh, what's it called? Um, what's the album after Hotel California? Oh, I can't remember. But this was his signature piece. He said, "Like, how could Hotel California be one of America's greatest albums?" Anyway, the one after it is terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's awful. I mean, and and Don and Glenn and like the guys in the Eagles would say it's an awful album. Mm-hmm. And and my brother, or my buddy's thesis is like because there was no limitations on them. Anymore. Yeah. And and another good proof to this model is Johnny Cash, uh, before he died, made an incredible piece of work with Rick Rubin, mm-hmm. and his limitation was he couldn't breathe. Like yeah, he could he, barely hold the notes out. Right? Yeah. yeah, he could barely hold the notes out. Mm-hmm. That's a legitimate limitation. Yeah, and in that beautiful life-giving art comes from that space. So in in making Evanescence in and of itself, you had the limitation of basically you're working at Circuit City. Yeah, yeah. you're barely you're barely making like what you need right. to pay for your rent and a little. And you know you're you're having you, you've got a finite amount of time because the lion's share of your time is going toward you know saying like yes it's a 486 no it doesn't have this mm-hmm. and this and this mm-hmm. and yeah yeah and so it becomes precious it I becomes very precious yeah. I mean, completely understand that yeah. I mean you like to sidetrack you've got this studio down here mm-hmm. that you know obviously is you know here all the time right. now if this if gear is so much better than the stuff that we were. Oh my then. gosh! Yeah. Can you imagine if we had this kind of stuff 10, 15 years ago? What exactly. the, the insanity that we would do? What, elastic audio? Are you serious? Oh uh, really? Yeah. Vocal align? Give me a break! <laughs> Wait a minute. Just trying to get to that certain place. And yeah. it, but if you said like you can have the space, but you can have the space half the time. Hmm. You have to share this with somebody. You know, have right. to rent this out to some right. asshole with grubby fingers. <laughs> Who never washes his hands after he smokes cigarettes and then fingers your mouse like it's some girl and underneath the bleachers. I hate him. It's, I hate Why? Him so but like to to have that, that precious finite time. Yeah. You know, like those limitations is something that's very special and very very formulative. Um, yeah, it is. Now how I, I don't want to fast forward too much. How do you work that out with now? You know, with your limitations. Um I'm not Evanescence. I'm not the artist anymore. I think for the artist it's a it's a continual struggle mm-hmm. um uh, maybe i have a, a dual approach to it um i wrote with a, a band today they've been pretty successful uh and they're kind of like poised for the next next record to do really well mm-hmm. the limit honestly and maybe this is maybe i'll recant this later in life but i don't think the necessity of limitation is on me mm-hmm. i th- i 
do think it's on them because even though I am a songwriter with them, even yeah. though I'm delving into that world with them, my job is almost as a producer. Well, maybe that's not fair. My my job as a songwriter now is to feed off of their creative energy. What I like about my job now and what maybe what's challenging about it is that if I write with a 19-year-old girl who's breaking up with her boyfriend, uh, then that day... Mm. I'm a 19-year-old girl breaking up with my boyfriend. Yeah. If I'm if I'm writing with a, a bunch of 40-year-old guys in a rock band one day, mm. then I'm a 40-year-old rock guy. Like my job now is not necessarily to have to speak my own voice. Yeah. But it is and to create my own artistry, but it is to connect with the artistry of the person that I work with now. So you're less the hull of the ship uh, and yeah, you're more absolutely. of the sail and the rudder. Yeah, I think it's totally true. I think mm-hmm. it's completely the case. Like, mm-hmm. and I am, bet, uh, quotation marks, better songwriter today than I was with Evanescence. But I am a much less. Uh, I'm definitely not as personally invested. Mm-hmm. I I am a much less like it was everything to me then. Mm-hmm. And well, now becomes, it's a yeah, job be- it me. becomes like this prism from which you can actually rend. The, the truths of your soul from yeah and like and that because like this is my expression to the world right then it also becomes like and it's and this is not to say that you know one the good and bad of anything like that but to say like this is three and a half minutes where I entertain somebody with a story that I'm going to tell right with a verse and a chorus and right. this is kind of the form because this is the way that people listen to songs and it's not as though every new song that you write it needs to be something hyper inventive and different. right and I think that there's a there's a value that I add to artists um in being a rudder where I, I allow them it's their journey that, that tells the story. And then I, and then I, yeah, I'm there not as an A and R person, but I'm there as a, as a creative cohort to say, we can break this rule Mm -hmm. just for, for the record, this is a rule Mm -hmm. and we can break this rule, but tell me why we're breaking this rule. Yeah. Not just to do it. Right. But yeah, exactly. And and to also say like, listen, if we go that way, that's fine. Mm -hmm. I understand. There's rocks. Yeah, these yeah. are the repercussions for it, and 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 so I'm almost like I've almost switched from Luke Skywalker to Obi Wan mm-hmm. in that in that place. And I don't. I mean, I'm an idiot. I'm no Obi Wan Kenobi, but I but I do have a. I'm used for my craft now more than I'm used for my like just native inspiration and mm-hmm. and energy. And I and that's that's when I work with artists. When I'm not with artists, mm-hmm. I'm that kid again. Like yeah. I really do feel an obligation to enter into that space. And so when I do things like, um, when I do any artistic venture of my own, mm-hmm. then I do have to dive back into that thing. But the mm-hmm. good thing about all that is, my limitation is a natural one. And my limitation is, you're 35 and you have kids. Mm-hmm. How do you have a relevant voice and culture? Mm-hmm. Or you're the guy who sits behind the artist. How can you have a voice that has value? Like I, the good thing is that the limitation that exists for me artistically mm-hmm. is a natural one because I've never been known as an artist. Mm-hmm. So if I want to speak artistically, I still am pushing against a natural source that's saying like, mm-hmm. no one really cares about you singing, David. They care about you writing for someone else. Mm-hmm. And then when I am writing for someone else, I'm I'm 
adding input to their inspiration and their muse. I'm not necessarily creating a muse for them. Yeah, yeah. And that that can be a lot less draining than actually uh, hanging your entire ethos and being yeah. on, like, you know, whether or not this song not only is good, right. but is well-received after even that. Completely. But to go back a little bit. You're right, and that's how I can walk away from it. Yeah. It yeah. Doesn't own, yeah. It doesn't own me in the same way. Yeah, and you know what? And this is uh, some weird realization that I've had over the last couple two or three weeks, uh, very recent for mm-hmm. me, is kind of, I was like, wait a minute, I think that you can actually also be an artist and do that too. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, going back a little bit, yeah. I don't want to skip out on the moment when you, when Evanescence started taking off. What was the yeah. process of that, man? So, so three years of my life were consumed by Evanescence. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that, um, I say that Evanescence wasn't a band until I joined um, not because me joining made them a band. Amy is an incredibly talented artist and singer mm-hmm. and songwriter. Ben, especially at the time, was the most talented songwriter and, and visionary that I had ever seen. They're incredibly talented. They don't need me around. But but when I joined, I think it sent us. It gave a sense of resolve. It definitely gave a sense of resolve to Ben, and I think in turn gave a sense of resolve to Amy, where it was like, "Oh, this is a thing. Mm-hmm. Let's chase this thing down." And we started to write songs and arrange songs and form music in a way that really made sense. Looking back, I wouldn't have realized it at the time. Ben and Amy had certain things that they had in common. Amy and I had certain things that we had in common, and Ben and I had certain things that we had in common, obviously. But essentially, I was pop music. Mm-hmm. I had grown up with, and not pop necessarily in the Britney Spears sense, but more in like a classic pop. Don't bore us, get to the chorus. Elton, kind of. Yeah, Elton John, write a good song, write a good melody, tell a good story kind of thing. Ben grew up with, uh, if I were to reductionalize it, with Metallica. Ben grew yeah. up with aggression and with garage and days with strong and the whole rock thing. and roll music, which yeah. is fantastic. I'm in. And then Amy provided, not in any way the foundation, but probably the most important part, which was a unique spin on the whole story. Amy had Amy loved Bjork. Amy and I both really loved Bjork and, and Tori Amos and Fiona Apple, but Amy especially really loved the quirkiness of it. Mm-hmm. So I brought like maybe a, a musical pop sensibility and Ben brought us this sense of aggression and edge and Amy brought this unique voice to the whole mm-hmm. thing. It's nymphy sprite kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah, and I and I really do think that's the real Venn diagram is that if Ben and I liked a song but Amy didn't, mm-hmm. we didn't finish it. If mm-hmm. Amy and I liked a song but Ben didn't, we didn't finish it. If, mm-hmm. if Ben and Amy liked a song and I didn't, we didn't finish it. If and so in the course of so after a year we got a record deal and then we spent another two years writing an album and that was the season of time that kind of broke the the three of us up and we'll never end up working together again and there's something really sad about that but mm. but in that process we only wrote 15 songs wow. and most bands now to make an album they write 60 songs or 100 songs mm-hmm. or whatever we only wrote 15 songs. Because we would spend six weeks write or more writing a song. Mm-hmm. Because for it to be a song that Amy liked and a song that Ben liked and a song that I liked. And you're, you're searching around in the dark for like you're inventing stuff yeah. out of nothing. And so you go, nope, 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 nope. It's, gonna, it's like playing whack-a-mole. It you know? totally is, yeah. yeah. It, it completely was. And it's, 
And so some people were like, you only had to write 15 songs? It's like, but it was the most arduous writing process yeah. of my life. To be so disparate from each other, you know? And then, and you know. there's no sense of an end goal with it either. Mm-hmm. Like, I think people have this understanding of, like, once someone has reached success, it was always inevitable for them to be successful. Yeah. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Like, through that whole process, we thought, no one's ever going to hear this music. It's never going to get anywhere. We could We've, turn this in, and they would just go, like, fucking no. Right, exactly. So the whole process was was a really hard one along the way. Um, but f- when we finally tapped into a song that all three of us liked, and it resonated with all three of us, that was pretty special. Yeah. That was a pretty... not. I don't know if it's great or not, but it's a really special song. Mm-hmm. And a song that I would even venture to say no one else in the world could write. Mm-hmm. Like for all three of us to have our input on it and to believe in it and to care about it and to like each other's input on it, Lincoln Park couldn't do that. Well, because I mean, no one's going to no put in the time could... for that because you're, you're right. basically trying to like, you're, you guys are all trying to focus group creativity. Like, right. And it's, and people don't have like the patience for it now, no, especially not like, at all. Like, like you guys hit at the very moment the very end of what you people were capable of actually maintaining that level of, of sophistication and right. energy and attention. Because I mean, that, but, and I, I think that it, that's maybe a little bit too romantic of a version of it. Like m- music actually made a shit ton of money back then too. That is true. And it was the very end of that. Yeah. So people involved with the Evanescence record on the, on the label side, uh, I've heard say before, like we were real bastions for artist development. And I won't say that they were wrong, except their version of artist development was they didn't talk to us for two years. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't hear anything from them. We lived in LA. We lived in the Oakwoods in a furnished house, housing place, which is the most sterile sucking experience. Yeah. It was really rough. And we all, we lived on $150 a week, which from Little Rock was like, I can do that yeah, in man. L.A. That's pretty rough. Yeah, but like you know how much top ramen you can get for that. Exactly. Yeah. It's like I hope that my car doesn't need oil. <laughs> so, so we did we did that for about a year and a half, and uh, and it was artist development in the sense that we they didn't really mess with us much and we didn't get dropped, but they weren't. There was no development. It was just allowing us to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that is a that is a virtue, but it's not as virtuous as maybe maybe some people may say. Yeah. Um. And then yeah, and so then we made the record. The the odd thing about Evanescence. Well, one of the odd things about Evanescence is that we weren't we never played out live. Really. I play piano. Amy sings. Ben plays guitar. Mm-hmm. We don't have any. <laughs> We weren't very nice to people, so we didn't have any friends who played drums or bass. Uh-huh. Or we couldn't, we couldn't pay them anything, obviously. So yeah. it's like we, uh, we were consumed with our music, and we could put drum beats down on. Uh, it wasn't even Pro Tools at the time, but we could, Cubase or something. Yeah, exactly. It was actually called Vegas. What was the name oh, of Vegas? Was the, the Sony version of? Uh, I don't. It was before Sony bought it. Uh, Acid was the name of the looping program, and yeah, Vegas was the name yeah. of the multi-tracking. Uh-huh. I can't remember the anyway. But yeah, so it wasn't even Pro Tools. We could put, we could fake a drummer and a bass player yeah. for recordings. Um, but we never played out live, so there was never this gratification of an audience saying that's a good one or this mm-hmm. is a bad one. We just kind of made our music, mm-hmm. and if it stuck around, if we resonated, then then it would be something. And and then we went into the studio. 
with a guy named Dave Fortman who was the perfect producer for us at the time. Mm-hmm. Mainly because we all were about to kill each other and he was just... He was the Billy Preston to your Abbey yeah, Road. Yeah, comple- completely. Yeah. He was just so easy and he he had been he was in a band called Ugly Kid Joe and they had... Dude! Yeah. Love those yeah. guys. So, and he had been on the road with, uh, I mean, Def Leppard and mm-hmm. Bon Jovi and he had such great stories. Mm-hmm. That he could tell when tension is rising with the three of us, mm-hmm. and yeah, it was a it was a rough patch for us. But he would tell funny stories, and we would get to the end of the day, and it's like, man, we we've, we've done a lot of work here. Yeah, like I'm kind of so tough to this. So there is the first half of the David Hodges interview. Whip smart guy. Can't wait to share the rest of it with you. Make sure to tune in next week for it. Remember, you can go to sharkbrainpodcast.com to listen to all of our episodes. We're nearing the 30s now, or maybe we're, we're past it. I don't know. I should know these things. should be better at that kind of a thing. Go to jakenewton.com to listen to music, order t-shirts, CDs, check out tour dates. I've got nothing going on right now because I'm making a record. But continue to spread the word. Continue to share with me your thoughts on the shows, offer your encouragement, and your very light and constructive criticism. I'm doing better. I'm not doing that great. So I don't think I could go on a a full-bore war against trolls. So, you know, dial it back, Internet. Remember, love your friends and be well.